what would be the perfect day, and this would happen, and she would get with this friend, and then he would come over, and she wasn't necessarily saying anything that would happen that day, but just what her idea of the perfect day is. And so from beginning to end, it was all integrated in one story. And it was later recognized how important this story element is for a child's mental development. And that's the, the main difference between older children's shows uh, such as Sesame Street and newer programs like Blue's Clues or Door the Explorer. I have a one-year-old, by the way, so I have an excuse to know about some of these things. Uh, but whereas Sesame Street was presented in this magazine-like style in three to five-minute uh, distinct segments, the newer programs are all one 30-minute narrative that includes everything. They found that to be much more helpful in capturing the attention of young children. It causes all the individual pieces to make sense. And I think there's a lesson here for how we approach the Bible. Edmund Clowney says this, anyone who has had Bible stories read to him as a child knows that there are great stories in the Bible, but it is possible to know Bible stories yet miss the Bible story. So when it comes to reading the, the Bible, this is an important fact that must not be missed. There is something, there's such a thing as the Bible story. The Bible has one overarching theme, one unfolding drama that is sustained from Genesis through Revelation. The individual stories and passages in the Bible, they're not like marbles in a bag, you know, dis disconnected inspirational sayings and nuggets of truth given in like a fortune cookie type style, but, but they're like threads in a tapestry. They're all part of something grand and continuous. There is what is called a meta-narrative, a narrative above the narratives, a narrative about the narratives, the grand scheme of what God is doing in this world. And the uniting theme is what is called redemptive history. According to Christianity, History matters. A good portion of the Bible is made up of, of history books, and the message of the Bible centers on key historical events. I remember a conversation I had a number of years ago with the chair of the philosophy department at UNO, and we talked about a few things, including the fact that I'm a Christian, and as a result of that, I have certain philosophical commitments. But one of the things he tried to convince me was that I, I could still be a Christian and yet not believe that the events recorded in the Bible are true. In other words, what does it matter if there was some guy named Abraham as long as we live like Jesus and love our neighbor? But the problem is this isn't biblical Christianity. Christianity is not just a set of ethical principles. It is an announcement about God doing something in history which is why history matters. J. Gresham Machen says, if religion be made independent of history, then there is no such thing as a gospel. For gospel means good news, tidings, information about something that has happened. A gospel independent of history is a contradiction in terms. History matters. But according to the Christian worldview, history is not just a collection of neutral facts. There is a direction to it all. The triune God is working, as Ephesians 1.10 tells us, to unite all things in Christ as a plan 
for the fullness of time. That is God's goal for history. In fact, if it were not for redemption, if it were not for the gospel, there would be no history. Human history would have ended with the fall. God would have rightly wiped us out and there would have been no more. But history continued because of God's plan to redeem. And the Bible is the story of that redemptive history. It tells of God's covenant with Abraham. His promise to make him into a great nation and that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. It tells of the exodus, the great redemptive event in the Old Testament in which God proves to his people that he has not forgotten that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He leads them out of Egypt with a mighty and outstretched arm. He delivers them from bondage and tyranny. There's the giving of the law at Sinai, the revelation of God's moral character and how we are to approach Him in worship. And Joshua and Judges, the people begin to enter the land of promise, though their failure to obey God faithfully and drive out their enemies causes one headache after another. But God is always ready to save His people from those who oppress them by raising up judges. There's the period of the kingdom begun by Saul, but established by David, to whom God promises an everlasting throne and a house established forever. But despite God's abundant mercy, the history of the people of Israel is marked by idolatry and unfaithfulness, leading God to send them packing into Babylonian exile for 70 years. But God brings His people back to the land where they wait with anticipation until Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam comes and he makes everything right by his life and death. And one day God's people in Christ will dwell with him forever as he restores all of creation as the place of his presence. That's the story of the Bible. Stated simply, as Graham Goldsworthy says, it's that God is bringing His people into His place under His rule. And what all this means is that as you approach any text in any place in the Bible, go ahead, just turn to a random page in your Bible. Just open it up. All right, the biggest thing that is happening on that page is that God is bringing His people into His place under His rule. We should never lose sight of that as we read this book. And Jesus provides a theological foundation for this in Luke 24. Go ahead and turn there. The Gospel of Luke chapter 24. The context is that this is after the resurrection and two disciples, one of them is named Cleopas, are on their way to Emmaus. And Jesus appears to them, although He doesn't reveal Himself to them at first. And it turns out they've heard about the empty tomb and about the testimony of the women. And yet they are disappointed. They say in verse 21, we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. They don't get it. They don't understand how the crucifixion of Jesus fits into all of this. And so Jesus says in verse 25, 
O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Skip down to verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? Verse 44. Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Okay, what does it look like to understand the Scriptures? He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to His name in all, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And we should notice two things that Jesus says about the relationship between Himself and the Scriptures. First, notice the scope of what He says. It is all-encompassing. Verse 25, all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Verse 27 again, interpreted in all the Scriptures. Verse 44, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So he's talking about every category of Scripture. Now, what's the content of every category of Scripture? The message, verse 26, that the Christ should suffer and enter into glory. Verse 27, things concerning Himself. Verse 44, written about Me. Verse 47, the Christ should suffer, rise from the dead, repentance and forgiveness proclaimed in His name. Jesus is the topic of Scripture. It is all about His person and work. Luke 24 provides an infallible principle of interpretation. All Scripture points to Christ. His suffering, His death, His resurrection, repentance and forgiveness of sin proclaimed in His name through the gospel. Now, while it is plain to us that the New Testament is about Christ, it may be less obvious that the Old Testament is. But Jesus clearly says it is, doesn't He? And that's not unique to Him. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15 that the Old Testament Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. They're able to do that. In Galatians 3.8, He says that Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. In 1 Peter 1.10, Peter writes that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So knowing Jesus is there, how do we find Him? And maybe you have the problem that I do, that somebody will send me to look for something in another room, 
And I'll go there and I'll take a few minutes and just survey the landscape of things and not, not seeing it there. And I'll go back and say, are you sure it's over there? You know, could you come with me? And it defeats the purpose of them sending me to go find it. And they come back and there, there it is. It's right on the shelf. I, I, just, I just had missed it all along. Maybe that's what it's like. We, we know Jesus is there, but we're not sure how to find him. Well, the Old Testament speaks about Christ in three ways. Just give us quickly, three ways that the Old Testament scriptures refer to Jesus. The first is what you might call text disclosure, and that's just a direct reference to Christ or his work. For example, Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Just could not be more clear this is about Jesus. We're talking about him here. Zechariah 9, 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The only time that happened, recorded in the Bible, is in the triumphal entry when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding humble on a donkey as he is hailed by the people. But not every time the Old Testament speaks of Jesus is like that. There's also what's called type disclosure. And you have typology when there is some sort of symbol in the Old Testament, such as the sacrificial lamb, and then there's a principle running throughout redemptive history, such as the principle of substitution, and together they meet in Christ. And we'll look at an example of topology in a moment when we'll discuss Exodus chapter 17. But the New Testament authors often interpret the Old Testament as being typological of Jesus. So when Jesus and his family returned from Egypt after fleeing Herod, Matthew quotes Hosea 2.15, Out of Egypt I called my son. The problem is, if you, if you look at Hosea, it doesn't seem to be talking about Jesus. It seems like God's talking about bringing His people, Israel, out of Egypt in the Exodus. But Matthew's not being careless with Scripture here. He views Jesus as the new Israel, bringing in the new Exodus. Now, the way of saying that is that Israel and the Exodus are types of Christ and His work. The third way is what you might call context disclosure. And you, and you have context disclosure when there is anything in the text that would hint of the gospel or of our need of the gospel. It might be showing us our fallen condition, man's sin, rebellion, hardness of heart, our suffering, our brokenness, weakness, desperation. Or maybe it's showing us God's posture of mercy, His compassion, His faithfulness, His readiness to forgive, His protection of His people, His steadfast love and care. And, and both of these themes point to, they're, they're reaching for what God would accomplish in Christ. So those are the ways that the Old Testament talks about Jesus, and hopefully I didn't give anybody a new nosebleed just then. But what I want to do now is to come back down to earth and apply this Luke 24 principle to three examples. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three passages together to see if we can discover him there. 
And just before I, I do that, I just want to mention that two authors that have really helped me to understand these passages, uh, one of them is Edmund Clowney, we quoted from him a moment ago, and the other is Dale Ralph Davis, and we'll, we'll hear from him in just a moment. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 17. read verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Maybe you're some parents in here say that every now and then about your children. You just go to God. They're about to stone me, God. Help me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? We live in a society today that is fond of litigation. In other words, we like to sue people. And we like to watch other people sue people, which is why we've created reality TV shows about it. And our text begins with a lawsuit of sorts. And verse 7 says that Moses called the place Massa and Meribah, which mean trial and strife. For the people quarreled, or you could translate that, brought suit against the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? In other words, they claim that God isn't keeping His end of the deal. He's promised to be their God, and yet here they are thirsty in the wilderness, and so obviously He has forgotten them. But that's just their hardness of heart because... God has been nothing but good to them. And this story immediately follows God giving them manna from heaven. So the people in their sin are ready to stone Moses. And that's not like mob violence. Stoning in Israel was how you executed a guilty party. They're saying we, 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 we can't punish the Lord, so we're going to take it out on the Lord's servant. And God says, okay, we'll have a trial. And he has Moses gather together the congregation of Israel and the elders. And he tells Moses, oh, 
and, and take with you the staff with which you struck the Nile. And here's where the tension in the story begins to build because this is no ordinary stick. This is the rod of judgment. There's going to be a trial, but Moses isn't going to be the defendant. He's going to be standing as the judge. The question is, who is the guilty party? But here's the twist. God says in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you. Now, th this is different. Normally, the guilty party stands before God. As in Deuteronomy 19.17 says, Both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. But here, when God appears before Moses, He is taking the place of the accused. And He says He will stand on the rock. Throughout the Old Testament, the rock is a symbol of God Himself. He identifies with it. He is called the rock of salvation in Psalm 95, which actually talks about this story. It talks about Massa and Meribah. And here's the really surprising feature. God tells Moses to strike the rock. So the people have sinned against God. And yet, God appears before Moses as the guilty party, and Moses takes the rod of judgment and strikes the rock on which God stands and with which God is identified, and water comes out in order for the people to drink. This is amazing. Reminds us of the words of the song we sing, that the punishment of God on God has brought us peace. In West Berlin, shortly after World War II, there was a play that raised the question, who is guilty? And the drama begins as different members of the cast begin to ask the question, who knew about the Holocaust? And the German housewife, well, she said she didn't know anything. She was just minding her own business. And the industrialist who worked in steel production, no, he, he didn't uh, know anything. He was just doing honest labor. The stormtrooper, well, he knew something, but he was just following orders. It turns out that the industrialist and the housewife knew some things as well. But, but no, they're not to blame. The blame is higher up. The Nazis are to blame. Higher than that, Hitler is to blame. But that's not high enough. God is to blame. He let this happen. He did this. And so they decide to put God on trial. And they find Him to be guilty. And so they begin to sentence Him. One says, I lost a son in the war. Let him lose a son. Another says, look at all the Jews who suffered. Let him be a Jew. Another, let him wander the earth deprived of his rights. Let the legitimacy of his birth be questioned. Let him go homeless, hungry, and naked. Let him die an agonizing and humiliating death. 
You see, this play was written by a Lutheran pastor. And 1,500 years after Massa and Meribah, there would be another trial. And Christ, the innocent one, would stand as the accused. And he would receive the blow of the rod of God's judgment for our sins. And by his life and death, we would have the true drink of eternal life with him. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.3, They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, he doesn't mean the rock literally was Christ, but that the rock was a type of Christ. In Exodus 17, we see clearly what Christ would accomplish for us. So Jesus says in John 7.37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, let him drink, as the Scripture says, out of his heart, that is, out of the heart of Christ, will flow rivers of living water. You know this, Christ? Come and drink. Come and find forgiveness in him. Come and find joy in him. Come and find life in him. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38 is one of those passages of Scripture you're not sure whether or not you want to read to your kids. It's one of the reasons why if the Bible were made into a movie, it wouldn't be rated G. And we're not going to be able to look at all the details this morning, though it's just a very interesting chapter. You'll want to read it later. But here in Genesis 38, we are in the middle of the story of Joseph. So remember, there's, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and Jacob had 12 sons, one of them named Joseph. And in chapter 37, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And then in chapter 39, that's the story of, about Joseph and Potiphar's house. And so sandwiched between these two stories about Joseph, the innocent one, being wrongly accused and delivered over into slavery. And these are both pictures of Jesus, by the way. There is this, this story about Joseph's brother, Judah. And what we find out here is that Judah was a wicked man who had wicked sons. Judah's first son, Er, was killed by God because of his wickedness. Now, if we know our Bibles well, that, that shouldn't mess us up because that's what the wages of sin is. That's what all sin deserves. But according to the custom, Judah's second son, Onan, marries Er's widowed wife, Tamar, but instead of fulfilling his duty to her as her husband, he treats her like a harlot to be used rather than a wife to be served. So Onan dies as well. Well, Judah's third son, Shelah, is young, and so Judah tells Tamar to wait for him. Secretly, Judah, Judah thinks of Tamar as some sort of black widow spire. He's not going to risk giving his third son to her. Uh, he has no intention of giving her Shelah. And so Tamar waits patiently without a husband until the time comes, but Judah doesn't do as he promised. And so here it's 
time for action. So look at verse 13. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she rose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Well, Tamar ends up pregnant, as she hoped, and Judah's response, characteristically in verse 24, is this, bring her out and let her be burned. And she says, well, before you do that, <laughs> uh, here's the driver's license and the credit card of the father. And Judah's eyes widen. Perhaps when she says, examine these, whose are they? These words ring in Judah's ears as he remembers asking a similar question to his father when he presented Joseph's ripped and bloodied coat. So Judah experiences conviction, and he says in verse 26, she is more righteous than I. Now, where is Christ in this? Well, that comes nine months later and with twins. Look at verse 28. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means a breach has been made. And Perez was a tenacious child shoving aside his brother in order to be the firstborn. But more tenacious in this story is God's grace. Because Perez would have a son, Hezron, who would have a son, Ram, then Amenabab, then Nation, then Salmon, then Boaz, then Obed, then Jesse, and then David, king of Israel, and eventually Jesus Christ. Out of the mess of sin in this passage comes the messianic line. So Jacob says in Genesis 49.10 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. A wicked Judah, you're going to rule. And so Jesus is not ashamed to be called the lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5. Or to have Tamar listed in his genealogy in Matthew 1. 
This is the Romans 5.20 principle where sin abounds, grace kicks into high gear. No amount of depravity or deceit can clog the flood of God's mercy into this fallen world. God makes a breach into our sin and breaks forth. As Warren Gage Christopher Barber says, God is a redeemer. He takes brokenness and brings it to wholeness. He turns sorrow into joy. He longs to do such works of juxtaposing for His children. What are the areas of your life where you long to see God do such a great work? Where are you suffering? Where are you wounded by sin? Where are you experiencing brokenness so that you can turn your eyes to the God who breaks into history with supernatural force and restores? Finally, let's turn to Judges chapter 4. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. There's a pattern to the book of Judges as you read it. It starts with the people of Israel forgetting the Lord and deciding to serve Baal, you know, because that always works so well for them. And so the Lord then delivers them into the hands of their enemies. And in response to this, they cry out to the Lord for help. And so God sends a Savior or, or a judge to rescue them from their oppressors. And we find that pattern here in chapter 4. In verse 1, it says this, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is barely on the tails of the last time God had delivered them. There's a monotony to sin. It's boring. It has the same story. And so verse 2 says, The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. And then verse 3, The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel for 20 years. So, God raises up Deborah and Barak to take out Sisera. Let's read in verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagayim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. 
But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. I think I would too. (laughs) And behold... As Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, we should note first that Unsurprisingly, many people have found the actions of Jael here to be problematic. I mean, apparently she doesn't seem like a Titus II woman as she drives a tent peg into Sisera's head. But the problem is that the text commends her for what she does. In chapter 5, in the prophetic song of Deborah, it says in verse 24, Most blessed of women be Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. And then in verse 23, she curses Meraz because of their failure to take out Sisera. In other words, Jael did what was supposed to be done. You guys didn't do it, so she took care of business. And the events of the day are said to be the actions of God. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. That was a prophecy that came true. Verse 14, the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Verse 23, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. This is the Lord's doing. And it is intended to be marvelous in our eyes. And we don't need to cry crocodile tears for Sisera because Sisera and his men had raped Israelite girls. A womb or two for every man was how they would put it. And he had oppressed the people cruelly for 20 years. So Dale Ralph Davis writes, Sisera's stiff corpse is a blessed assurance. That's how all of Yahweh's enemies will perish. And so the account ends 5 verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. And this is where the text finds its place in redemptive history as part of a story 
that is centered on Christ. At every point in history, God's people have had those who terrorized them. Whether that's the Roman Emperor Nero, who used crucified and scorched Christians as the tiki torches for his parties, or Bloody Mary Tudor, who had 300 religious dissenters burned at the stake because they believed the Bible, or Joseph Stalin, who had Christians experimented on with psychiatric drugs and then declared mentally insane. But God has always been postured to protect His people. He doesn't always remove the suffering because even that pain is part of His loving plan for them. But He has promised to make everything right. Yahweh is the warrior king who fights for His people. Vengeance belongs to Him and He will repay. And we know this is true because of the work of Jesus Christ who did not drive a tent peg into Sisera's head, but had tent peg-sized nails driven into his wrists. And he crushed the head of the serpent by being lifted up like a serpent on the cross. The bruised heel of Christ, His atoning death, guarantees that the suffering of God's people at the hands of evil men and of Satan himself will not pass by without an answer. God has decisively responded to it. And Jesus will return as the Lord of history. And Revelation 19 says that He will be swinging a sword in His fist as He is ready to make war against His enemies. The question is, as this text ends, are you a friend of God? Are you His friend through Christ? you at peace with Him, then He is for you, and He will make everything right for you. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I hope the amount of material has been more helpful than confusing. Um, but let me conclude by saying this. Reading the Bible is not easy. The reality is it takes work. But one of the ways that we often try to make it easier is to read the Bible like a Pharisee. You know, just, just tell me what I need to do today. That's all I'm interested in. Just tell me what's right. Tell me what's wrong. Give me what I need for today and I'll be good to go. And we get frustrated because we haven't first taken the time to worship at the feet of Jesus. But it's worth it to take the time to read the Bible in a way that seeks to find Christ knowing that He is really there. And over time, you'll get more and more out of it and the Bible will open up in ways that are deep and enriching. So this morning we discussed reading Scripture with an ear for the story. Come back next week, we'll talk about reading Scripture with an eye for the details. How do you make observations in the passages there? Let's, let's, let's close by asking God's help as we continue to pursue His Word.
Lord, we know that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ. And we want to be a people who know your promises and who know your Christ. So help us, God. First, put in us a hunger, a desperation. Lord, thank you for the word Pastor Peter brought last week that we read for our very lives. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that is pouring forth from your mouth. Lord, we need this book for our spiritual life. Convince us of that. Make us be a people who love to read it. And as we read it, grant to us understanding. Grant to us the power of your Holy Spirit to open up the word that he has inspired and to show us the one that it is all about. Lead us into your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See you guys next week.